Well, it is good to be here. Um, if you've got a Bible, go to 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, if you've been here for a while, if you're new here, we've been teaching through 1 Corinthians. Uh, if you have been here, then this is not unfamiliar uh, to you that this is where we're going to be spending our time this morning. And um, let me just give us a little context, which will be helpful uh, before we kind of dive into what in particular we're going to talk about. Um, and the first thing is this, uh, this is a young church, and not young necessarily in age, but young in the fact that they're young in the faith. Uh, a lot of new converts. They're living in a port city, uh, so it's kind of a collision area of a lot of different things, commerce, art, all kinds of stuff. It's a melting pot of different religions, of different cultures. Uh, we've talked about uh, Corinthians 6, it was a sexually charged city, it's pretty licentious, lots of crazy things going on. There was worship of many gods uh, happening in Corinth. And Paul is writing, the overriding theme uh, that he's driving at with the Corinthian churches is that he's concerned that some issues have, have arisen that are causing division within the church. And he's saying, uh, I'm fighting for you guys to be unified in Christ, to understand who you are in Christ now and that your unity would be remarkably evident in a public form, that people who saw you would know that you are believers in Christ. The subcontext that we're going to talk about this morning is in particular, um, we're continuing, he's been talking about in 12, 13, and 14 about gifts. Today we're going to be looking at gifts in worship, like as in where we're at right now. Public worship uh, is, is kind of some of the context that he's addressing this in, even though we're going to we're going to bounce a little bit out of that uh, today for our application. Um, but the early church gathered, just like we do, often to worship. That's where we got the idea. And um, this was another kind of area. The gathering of public worship was another area where there's kind of a laundry list of things that were happening that were causing division and confusion. And so Paul is speaking into that specific gathering and these specific gifts and the gifts are this, uh, the gifts of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And so just by me saying that, it's like ding, 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 five alarm fire, everybody, oh my gosh, I grew up in this, with this background and this and that, and what does all this mean? Um, let me just say, there's a lot of challenges to what we're about to do. Um, so I hope you can um, gird yourself, uh, tighten your belt if you have one. If not, your pants must fit. Um, but... We need to have some emotional maturity, some restraint. Uh, just like when I said the word sex a second ago, everybody's ding, 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 goes off. Uh, the same thing happens with tongues and worship, uh, or sorry, tongues and prophecy. There's a, it's, a, it's a dividing point historically for the church. And so we're going to kind of have to just work hard this morning to hang with me uh, because I believe that he's actually using tongues and prophecy as a context to talk about gifts as a whole and really to help us understand something uh, very, very important that is applicable uh, to Midtown Fellowship 2011, a relatively non-charismatic church uh, that doesn't deal with tongues and prophecy on a regular basis as the Corinthian church was dealing with it. So, um, don't take every off emotional off-ramp that's available to you as I'm talking right now. Hang in there. Paul is teaching on a handful of levels in this text. 
He's got some very drilled down specifics about tongues and about prophecy, which we're going to do just a little bit of. How they should be handled. They're larger, but there is a larger, there's a more broad brush stroke picture concerning gifts. And here's kind of the context I want you to think in. The purpose, the value, and the ultimate end of, of spiritual gifts as a whole. Not just these two, but as a whole. Because we could talk about how they ceased. What's their role? Should all of us be doing these things? They're all important things, but because of our setting, we're not going to dig into that too far today. But gifts as a whole, I think this is one that we struggle with acutely here in Nashville, and in particular here at Midtown Fellowship. And here's the question, the, the kind of the header of everything today. What is the relationship between gifts and glory? How do you understand the relationship between gifts that God gives and glory? Paul's been teaching three solid chapters now on the relationship of gifts to the individual believer and to the whole. But this passage in particular, I believe, brings the issue of glory, of worship, to the forefront. And really this question, this is kind of the sub-question to that question. Whether or not gifts lead to God's glory or the glory of those who display them. Now you're starting to feel the poison ivy of the sermon, aren't you? The itch. Who gets the glory? Glory isn't a word that we use a lot today. If I were eavesdropping on your conversations, most of you would not say, if I was like, hey, what are you doing today? You wouldn't be like, just trying to wrangle up some glory from the people around me. Or, I'm, I'm trying to get people to worship me today. And uh, it's going okay. Um, we laugh, but it's really not that far off, is it? It might not be that far off. I want you to worship me. I want you to have a place of value for me that's above everyone else. What ends up being worship when gifts are used? This is what Paul's driving at. So let's go to the text. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 to 25. Man, this is a long text. I'm trying to decide whether I'm going to read it all. Well, I'll start and we'll make the decision along the way. Um, follow the way of love, verse 1, and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues. You start to hear the value question marks coming up. Unless he interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers... If I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring to you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? 
even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds such as the flute and the harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there's a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then... I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying. I am a foreigner to the speaker, and he is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. For this very reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I also sing with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who does not understand say amen to your thanksgiving since he does not know what you are saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, though men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. That's a quote from Isaiah. Tongues, then, are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. This gets a little cryptic here. So, if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say, you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare so he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What in the world is Paul talking about? Let me give you some context for the Corinth church. Paul is writing them because the use of tongues and prophecy had become an issue in public worship. I think you can see that just from the plain text. So much so that he is concerned about, in particular, the witness and the overall effect of these guys exercising these specific gifts. He desires to make some things clear here. In this context, tongues are permissible. They need interpretation. They have value, but they don't have the same value that prophecy has, specifically because of the effect that they have. Do they lead people to think madness of these men, or do they lead people to worship, repentance? They should be used, tongues, 
should be used under control. There should be order. They should have a purpose, which we're going to get to in a second. But let's, let's rewind for a second. The nature of gifts, period. Because remember, we're talking about gifts. Tongues and prophecy were gifts. Who gives them and what is their purpose? Prior to all this teaching in 12, 13, and 14 on gifts, we've already taught on this in, in 10, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Listen to this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. Hear this. Man, this is it. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7, just a few chapters later, makes it clear, God is the giver of gifts. He, it's his prerogative, Bobby Brown. Wow, that was right there. <laughs> Bobby Brown, man. Um, and then 14, 12, he makes it very clear, we should strive for the building up of the church, for the common good with these gifts. Paul is painting a picture here, not just in this passage, big, overarching, rainbow, broad sweeping. It's not an abstract. We're not coming to a wall and saying, hmm, I wonder, what is that supposed to mean to you, to me? Why did I put that voice on right there? It's like an art dealer voice art dealer it's not an abstract it's definitive he's saying everything that you do the simplicity of what you put in your mouth and what you drink especially how you use your gifts that he has given you this should be done to bring glory to the Lord period now if you're tracking with me and I hope you are this should stop us in our tracks. Like this should, this is like Matrix car drives off bridge, fire, boom. Because it's a hard pill to swallow. Culturally, we don't have much space for this kind of thinking or instruction. We are taught consciously, subconsciously, probably from every angle you can imagine from an early age seek your own glory it started in Genesis 3 with the fall of man it's continued ever since we face it every day when you get out of bed our flesh has an insatiable appetite for glory our own glory I'm going to be the thing that's going to add value to my life. So let's go back to the text. Verses 1 to 6. Go with me there. Makes it very, very clear in verse 4. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Both those gifts build up. One of the amazing things, and we don't have time to talk about this, is he actually doesn't shame the fact that you did something to edify yourself. Like when you use your gifts wrong as a child, oftentimes your parents punished you and they took the thing away from you. Paul's not taking away tongues from them. He's saying, no, it's a good thing. It just needs to be done in this context. 
So that's a beautiful side truth on top of everything else we're going to talk about. But he's, he's putting a, a, a hierarchy here. He's saying there are things that do have more value, not value in and of themselves, but value in light of the whole. How does this affect the whole body? So he's saying those things that affect the whole, they should be desired, they should be pursued. So let's define tongue just real quickly. The Greek word that Paul uses here, very simple, it's plain. A tongue is plain, not spiritual. It's an organ of speech, your tongue. Uh, uh. It's common use. It's a language somewhere. Maybe not here. Like if I started busting out fluent Spanish right now, y'all would probably be shocked. And I can't do that. But let's look, at, let's look at Acts 2, Pentecost. This is where this kind of really, the fire of this dialogue really began. Acts 2, Pentecost, the same word is used. The same word that Paul's using here in Corinthians, he's using in Acts 2. Or he's not using Acts 2, Luke's using in Acts. But it's the same Greek word. So let's read Acts 2, verses, verse 3 through maybe 7 or so. Because what was happening in Acts 2 is the disciples were hanging out. They were waiting for the Holy Spirit. Jesus had instructed them to do so in order to set them on their way to be the church that he called them to be in Matthew 28 when he said, go into the nations, repenting and baptizing, calling people to repentance. So here's three, verse 3 of Acts 2. They saw, so a crowd was gathered, watching the disciples, what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, the disciples, not everybody, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So there's a supernatural event happening here. These men are speaking in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them to do what kind of tongues? Verse 5, Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. It was intelligible. Native language. This was a supernatural event, but not because they were speaking some new supernatural ununderstandable language that no one had ever heard before but it was supernatural because these were all Galilean men who wouldn't have had any reason to know those other dialects and the spirit had empowered them to do that but what they were saying was intelligible it was understandable it was for the instruction of the people and how do we know that verse 12 amazed and perplexed they ask one another what does this mean Great little verse in the Bible. They understand, speaking language, right? Same language, what does it mean? There's a difference between hearing something and understanding it. We're not going to talk about that. It's a whole other sermon. But look at what follows. If you, if you go on to read that in Acts, Peter gives a sermon. He stands up and explains, this is what they're doing means. It's not that he explained, you know, that word that they used I know you, none of you understood it. They understood what he said. They didn't understand what he said. They knew the language, but they didn't understand it on a heart and a spirit level. Peter goes on to interpret. He gives a discourse. Who is Christ? What did he come to do? And it says very clearly in Acts, it's one of the beautiful passages, 
It says they were cut to the heart. That Peter's interpretation of their tongues cut them to the heart. That they repented, that they were baptized. The Greek there, it's amazing. It says, it says brothers, what shall we do? The real translation there is, is, brothers, tell us whatever and we'll do it. That's the sense. They were, so, they were laid bare by the understanding that they had of who Christ was. Repented, baptized, and 3,000 were added that day. This, he's using the same word. Paul's using the same word. He's saying, uh, this is how I want you to understand tongues. This is the context that tongues should be exercised. And they weren't doing it. There was no interpretation. There was no understanding. As a result of some of the context I told you earlier about what was going on in Corinth, people were coming to worship hammered on the sauce, talking over one another like a Nashville concert. Ooh, that got a little personal, didn't it? I think most people in Nashville think that we pay musicians to provide background music for our concert of our own conversation. Well, it's the same thing. That was what was happening in worship. We weren't gathering to worship. They weren't gathering to worship the Lord. They were gathering to over-talk what was going on, over-talk one another, one-upsmanship. And it was completely unintelligible, and it was madness. It was like being at Exodus and trying to listen to somebody. One Greek commentary, a lexicon translating this, says Paul's emphasis on tongues in this particular passage. He says, it is the gift of men who wrapped in ecstasy and no longer quite masters of their own reason, consciousness, pour forth their glowing spiritual emotions in strange utterances, rugged, dark, disconnected, quite unfitting to instruct or influence others. Paul is stacking this next to prophecy. Prophecy in this passage that we're studying, the word there in the Greek means to utter forth a thing which can only be known by divine revelation. Which I'll put another hand grenade out there. If someone's telling you God told me to do this, I'm not even going to address this, but you need to be really careful with that sentence. That you're so sure that God told you to do something. Wow. Got to leave that. 2 Peter 1.21 for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, in the New Testament with the apostles, ultimately in Jesus, the person, the second person of the Trinity coming in flesh, revealing the will of God, the redemptive plan of God, the means to accomplish that plan, namely himself, John 1, go read these passages. John 1 and Hebrews 1, the word becomes flesh. He doesn't come just to teach. He is the word of God. Hebrews 1 says that he is the exact representation of the Father in flesh. Paul is making it clear in this passage that the way that the gift of tongues is being used is inappropriate. And his greatest concern is that it's creating confusion. It's not edifying the whole, the whole body. Remember what we talked about in 12, all these many parts that build up the whole. 
We tend to think of, we're very individualistic in Western world. We tend to think of it, okay, I'm a hand, I'm a foot, all these, awesome. And it's true, awesome. But it's a part of a whole. My hand cannot go rogue right now and punch me in the face. Why can't it? Because it doesn't have its own ability to do that. My mind is somehow, scientist, please explain what's happening right now. That my mind is making my fingers do this. Because it's a part of a whole. There's singularity in the body of Christ. We fit. We play a role in the whole. All right, let's shift gears for our purposes this morning because we don't have people standing up speaking in tongues right now. No one else is going to prophesy today, I don't think. So, because this isn't a daily struggle, it would be really easy for us to kind of check out and be like, wow, that must have been kind of awkward in the Corinthian church. (laughs) Glad we don't have to deal with that today. Um... Let me get a little more personal, because I think Paul's raising this to the, this is really what he's raising to the service. Who gets the glory for your gifts? Who gets to instruct you how to use your gifts? Whose kingdom are you building with the gifts he's given you? Gifts and glory are intertwined. Verse 3 He makes it clear in this passage. Strengthen, encourage, and comfort the whole. Verse 5, gifts that the church would be edified. Verse 12, build up the church. Verse 19, I'd rather say five words of instruction than 10,000 in a tongue. When you think of your gifts, how do you view them? Honestly, just take a second. What is your functional view of your gifts? The things that God has created you, engifted you, entrusted you with? How do you view them? Take a drink. Does anyone get to instruct you on how to use them? Man, we don't like this, do we? No one likes to be told what to do. Authority issues. I've got authority issues from my childhood. Tell us yes and no. Put boundaries on our gifts. Paul is telling him, these are fine gifts, but there's a way to use them. How to view them. How to exercise them. You need to have restraint. You can't just do whatever you feel with them is a modern day understanding. All right, well, I'm going to show a clip from a film. It's an Academy Award winner. Um, Probably a film that changed the lives of more people than you can imagine. You know what I'm talking about. First night with Richard Gere. Oh, hold on, hold on. I need to set this up. Richard, Richard. No, yeah, I'm sure I'll take a lot of hits for this. Rush shows a cigarettes video. I show a C-rate, um, 19, what, 91 film probably. Um, anyways, Maligant, guy right there with his hand up doing this thing, was one of the knights of the round table, part of King Arthur's Camelot, um, decided he did not want to live under the rule of Arthur any longer. 
got together a band of thugs, carved out a rugged existence in a cave somewhere for a while, and is now back to take Camelot by force and has captured the city during a public meeting. Um, And he and Arthur have a dialogue, and I think it's helpful for what we're trying to get at today. I know some of you are just struck by his hair it's, it's nice isn't it it's, it's beautiful and his little pouty face there no tyrannical you, hear, you, hear, you see you see the, the dichotomy here Arthur tells you to serve one another When are you going to start thinking about yourselves? This is the freedom I offer you. That's as true as the serpent in the garden. This is the freedom I offer you. Freedom from the tyrannical dream, the tyrannical law, the tyrannical God. Let me encourage you. If the idea of God having that type of authority in your life seems tyrannical, there are two things I want you to consider. One, if that's true for us, we have severely misunderstood the depth of the love of God for us. Jesus did not come to hold you and I to a law that he was unable to keep or that he built for us to keep to kind of test us to see if we could live up to it. He came while we were enemies of his completely incapable of keeping that law and he fulfilled it it's the most untyrannical thing you could imagine he did for us what we could not do for ourselves to set us free from the gift that that malignant that culture is trying to say no no this is real freedom to set us free from being these absolute glory vacuums sucking the life out of every single person and every single thing in the world because we're, we're insatiable with the need for it. He set us free from living like that. So either we've severely misunderstood that or this one cuts even deeper. You can be pretty certain that your zeal, your gifts, your desire, your understanding about your gifts is attached to your glory. Gifts do one of two things. They edify you, they build you up, or they edify the body, or they build the body up. And Paul's saying, build the body. Verse one there, he says, very clearly, eagerly follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. He uses that same word in 1231. It's the word zeal. 
Paul is challenging them that their desire, their zeal to add to their gifts is not because they desire to bring glory, glory to the Lord, but attention to themselves. What do you burn for? If I were to, if we were to, if one of your friends were to comment on your life, what would they say? Gosh, I can't believe I'm asking this question right now. The zeal of that person's life is this. Gifts in a greater degree with a modern understanding, figure out who you are and become great at it become powerful, become better than everyone else because that's the thing that's going to give you value. That's the thing that's going to give you the love that you desire. That's going to set you apart. That's going to earn you the love and position you want. That's going to create a place at the table. You're in the family. Guys, the gospel has done all of that for us. You are free from living like that. Free. It's so ingrained in us. So much so that even our service to others is at times just a backdoor way of getting them to glorify us. I'm not even serving you for the right reasons. I'm just serving you because I want you to think I'm amazing. Our misuse, our misvalue of our gifts, even our envy of others' gifts reflects something much deeper. We misunderstand the gospel. Verse 20, verse 14, verse 15, he says this, and we're going to kind of tie it together here. In your thinking, be adults. He's saying mature in your understanding of the gospel. Mature in your understanding of what has been done for you in Christ. That nothing you could ever do could add a drop of value to your existence. And that when we had nothing to value about us, Christ gave himself for you and I. That value is secure, it is unchanging, and now you are set free to live a life that reflects the glory of God. We talk about it all the time at Midtown. Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Go to verses 22 through 25. Actually, just verse 24 and 25. Because he makes this just crystal clear. But if an unbeliever, someone who does not understand, comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner. He'll be convicted of sin. That he sits under judgment. The secrets of his heart will be laid bare so he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. That is the goal of worship. That is the goal of our lives as Christ followers. The people would see us and say, God is among that person. God is among those people. I want to be among those people because I'm ushered into the presence of the divine when it happens. It builds up the whole. People experience the presence of the Lord. Some of you have gifts. Some of you don't think you do, but you do, because we all have them. It's just because we've created some crazy hierarchy, Americanized it probably in some way. Some of you 
have gifts to teach. Some of you are gifted at listening. Maybe you're a shepherd who just cares for people. Maybe you just serve your brains out. You're just excellent at serving people. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe you're creative. Maybe you're artistic. Maybe you're an excellent planner and you can help me because I'm horrible at it. Maybe you're a builder. Maybe you're merciful. You're a defender of those who need defense. What are your gifts? Are they building you up? Are you building your kingdom with them? Are you building the whole? How are you walking in that, honestly? Let me pray for us. Lord, this is convicting. It's convicting to me. Um, Because I'm that guy at the concert talking too loud and not listening. (laughs) It's just the truth. Um, Often days, my flesh goes so unchecked. And before I know it, I'm um, singing my own song and not singing the song of you who made me and set me free. And um, so, Father, reveal this to us. Show us it. Guide us in this, Lord, that we would be those who understand our gifts, why you've given us uh, those gifts in particular, and how to use those in the best way um, that we would build up your body and that we would draw people unto you. In your name, amen.